Good morning. Our Old Testament passage this morning is taken from the minor prophet Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk is considered a minor prophet not because his message was minor, but just because of the length of his book. His uh, words from God are just as important to us as the longer books, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah. So please listen as, we, uh, as I read from the, the minor prophet Habakkuk. I will stand on my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he has to say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Our New Testament reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. This is Paul's exhortation to Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. <clears throat> but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Today is uh, Reformation Sunday. Uh, the, page six of the bulletin has a brief explanation of what the Reformation was about, and the six, or excuse me, the five solas involved with that. And when I think about the Reformation Sunday, I think of there's other words that I use to describe it for, for me. Remnant Sunday, where the remnant of believers return to God's word. I see it as Restoration Sunday, where God's word was restored. Return Sunday, because again, our forefathers returned to the word of God, not to institutions and traditions. Sola Sunday, because we do have the five solas. But the other thing I'd like to add to the list for today is Recognition Sunday for the Kearns. They came to us uh, a short time ago to help us as a church reform, restore, return. Also, it's a time of transition for us and showing us who we are, who we need to be before God, and helping us identify this, the new leader for this church. You can help us finish out the first 25 years of our ministry here and help us to begin the next 25 years of ministry here at our church. And as Sandy and, and Jerry look at their next um, mission, we would like to acknowledge them, and we'd like to pray for them, the church, and to pray blessings upon you as you minister now to Kent Island, a church also in transition. So let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are our rock and our salvation. And Father, we thank you for the forefathers that turned back to your word, turned back to you and you alone. <clears throat> Again, not to institutions, not to traditions, not to the, the uh, thoughts of man, but to the thoughts of God. 
And Father, we would pray for our church that we too would return to a sense of peace, purity, and unity found only in you. Father, we ask that you would guide us as a church as we uh, continue to minister to South County, as we continue to, to preach your word. And Father, we would pray too for Sandy and for Jerry as they uh, continue their um, use of their gifts in transitioning churches and helping them find new pastors. We pray that they would go with our blessings. And we ask that uh, Ken Island's church, uh, Safe Harbor, would receive them with the same enthusiasm and joy that we have. And Father, they would be a healing bomb uh, amongst their members. And Father, that you would give them great wisdom and mercy and love for that church as they have had for us. Guide now, Jerry, as he brings your word to us. Father, that uh, you'd be a faithful preacher. We'd be faithful hearers and doers of your word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let us turn to God's word, because this is a special day. Couldn't think of a better day to do my, my last sermon with you than Reformation Sunday. And you have an outline in your bulletin there, and that's on page 5. And on the back of that is a little Reformation history. And it tells you it's called Reformation because this monk and priest and professor in 1517, that's the 16th century for crying out loud, and he had some problems with his church. And being the man that he was, he wrote them down and he put them on the public bulletin board, which was the front door of the church. And he didn't know it, but he had ignited a revolution. And it got the best of all the governments and of the established church. In fact, it got to the point that one of the German princes kidnapped him and put him away in a castle hidden away for a year because he was afraid they were going to take him and kill him. And during that time, Luther translated the Old and New Testament from Hebrew and Greek into the German language. And then the printing press came along, and then that German language Bible became the standard for language spoken and written in Germany even up to this day. And that printed Bible started being disseminated, and then tracts and everything. And it was like the internet and, and everything. The government and the church lost control of what people could know. You see that? Because of the printing press. And they could print this stuff up, tracts and letters, and it was going everywhere. And the people awoke and they said, wait a minute. A lot of what's going on in government and in the church doesn't follow the Bible. Well, so what? We can do what we want. No, they said, we've always said the Bible is vital. Then it became, well, what does the Bible say? So to sum up the Protestant Reformation, because it was a protest, you know, church, uh, Luther and the Reformers wanted to reform the church. And then they found out that sometimes you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And all of a sudden, they found out they had a new movement on their hands. And it was called the protesting, protesting people that wanted to reform the church, the Protestant Reformation. And what they believed came down uh, to this. I notice I put there, oh yeah, uh, the word sola or alone in Latin. Scripture, faith, grace, Christ, and glory to God. And that sums it up. Now let me speak to you about two of those. The first two there, Sola Scriptura, 
and sola fide. I have a friend, I'd like for you to get him to know him, his name is Dr. Guy Prentice Waters, and he is James M. Baird Professor of New Testament at Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I know Guy because as an undergrad, he went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and attended our church in Durham. And then he went on the seminary, he went on to get his doctorate, and he's turned out to be a remarkable researcher and teacher and writer. And uh, he's got an excellent book on who runs the church that I recommend to everybody. He, a couple of years ago, wrote this. That He wrote this two years ago, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. He says, today many people are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, but not everyone is celebrating. Some have raised severe criticisms against the Reformers and their work. The Reformers, they allege, replace the authority of the church with the authority of the autonomous individual. Moreover, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, these critics claim, cut the nerve that connected morality and theology and effectively baptized licentious living. Martin Luther and John Calvin, they continue, opened Pandora's box, releasing two forces that not only rent the church, but also went on to define the modern age. Radical individualism and antinomianism, or uh, licentiousness. Understood on these terms, the Reformation is cause for lamentation, not celebration. So if you look around and you see rampant individualism, uh, I am a free, autonomous agent. I will think what I think, feel what I feel, and do what I want to do without regard to family, morality, government, church, or God. In fact, I am such an autonomous individual that despite evolution and biology and whatever you want to call it, I can determine my own gender. Now that's autonomy, is it not? And many blame the Reformation for that because we said, you know, you're no longer subject. You, you read the Bible on your own. You're a free agent. And then people say, and I can live any way I want, uh, materially, sexually, socially. You know, I can make that choice. And that's called antinomianism. Antinomianism comes from the Greek words antinomos, which means against the law. And antinomians say that there's no duty, there are no standards that I have to follow. Uh, I follow my own standards. So there was good that came out of the Reformation because these reformers wanted to free people from the government and the church, determining how they think and feel and go back to the revelation of God which supersedes church and government and councils and creeds and becomes the ultimate authority and stands above church creeds and councils and even above government. 
And that's why you see that many of the governments in the uh, 16th and 17th century were so opposed to the Reformation because if this is above the church and then above government, then that is revolutionary. And if you believe any of that, then you are a revolutionary. And be assured that those forces will continue to suppress that thought, that aspiration in your mind and heart by denigrating the Word of God and reducing its value as an ultimate authority and by telling you that if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to work for it throughout your whole life, and maybe you'll make it and maybe you won't, but we will help you to our best ability by telling you what to think, say, and do. You can see how revolutionary that is, but you see how precious those things are and should be to us. And while there's even an amendment in our Constitution that says we can even take up arms to violently protect those rights because they are so precious, but they will be so assailed. So let's look at this for a moment. What do we mean when we say, What's the first one? Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Faith alone. We, we mean that the Bible is the only, the ultimate rule of faith and practice. Okay? Now, what we don't mean, and uh, a guy, Prentice Waters, says these criticisms rest on a profound misunderstanding of the Reformation and specifically a misunderstanding of two of the leading doctrines of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. And uh, you can find this online, and he's not going to take credit for what I'm about to say because uh, he doesn't say what I'm about to say or what I just said. But I like some of his quotes because he's such a good writer. And what we mean by Sola Scriptura is that it's the ultimate standard. It's a revelation from God. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the right and the responsibility to read that and discern God's will. What we don't mean is that it's Scripture only. Because if you go and read the writings of Luther and Calvin, they regularly quoted the church fathers and theologians with appreciation and with authority. They regularly used and referred to the creeds of the church. They didn't say, they said scripture is the ultimate authority, but not the only authority. It's only scripture, but not scripture alone. Because if we think that, you know, just me and my Bible, me, my Bible, and God, first of all, that violates what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, and that is we are a body of Christ, and God has given gifts to people to serve the body. And, and um, in Ephesians 4, this brought out further, and it says, God has given gifts to this church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. So it is a misunderstanding to say the scripture is the ultimate authority, but a misunderstanding to say, and the only authority. Because if that's the case, why would the Holy Spirit have made us a body where we need each other and where we all have different gifts? And given the church 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, why are they needed? And you say, well, to do weddings and funerals. <laughs> and that's, in some churches, what the pastor has been reduced to. We want you to preach Psychology Today sermons and visit us in the hospital and marry and bury. But the scripture says the purpose of the pastor is to preach and proclaim God's word. That's his primary duty. In fact, if you go into most Protestant churches, not all, because after hundreds of years, tradition has changed. If you go into the Roman Catholic Church, the table is the center, you see. And because that's the main thing is the uh, repeated uh, uh, literal sacrifice of the body of Christ. And that's what infuses grace so that uh, people can grow as Christians and attain salvation. But when the Reformation came along, the pulpit was moved to the middle. And the communion table was moved front and center below the pulpit. Not demeaning the sacraments of the church, but making clear what was central. And if you see many medieval churches, they were designed so that people could get as close as they could to the elements of the sacrifice. But when the Reformation came around, they started building long churches and galleries because as long as you could hear the word of God, you were being ministered to by God. You no longer had to crowd around the table. A lot of changes came about through that. So to defend ourselves against this accusation of autonomy and, yes, abandon autonomy, which would destroy lives and families and governments, we say, no, it's Scripture alone is the ultimate authority, but not only Scripture. We have regard. We don't read the Bible like we're the only ones that ever read it. And we're the ones that have the most insight because, of course, we're the latest. The, the brand, we're the newest and the best. We read it in light of who has gone before, of our brethren that studied it and wrote and gave us counsels and creeds and commentaries. And I often tell people, I never prepare a sermon alone. Because I don't trust myself because I'm a fallen human being. And I've seen lots of tractors and trucks go off in the ditch on one side or the other of the road. And so I, who, well, who's there with me? Luther and Calvin and Guy Prentice Waters and the creeds of the church and the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechism and the Belgian Confession. They're all there with me on my shelves. Right now they're in my phone and in my pad. And I read God's word and say, what is it saying? And then I go to all my brethren and ask them, what do you think it said? And then I'm able to stay in the road. And I can confidently say to you, not Jerry Curran, who in the world would trust me? I don't. <laughs> the church, your brethren, the gifts that God gave to the church says to you, this is what God in his ultimate authority says in the word of God. Scripture alone, scripture only, but not only scripture. 
Now let's look at the other one, sola fide. This comes about because what we were saying was uh, justification by faith. How is a person justified before God? Now, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, which was the church at that time, the worldwide church, believed in justification by faith. But they believed it was a process. One is infused with grace at the time of baptism as a child. And that enables one to begin by choice to obey the law of God. But being weak in a fallen world, you need continual infusions of grace. And so the sacraments of the church, the baptism, and then the weekly, the daily uh, mass, uh, imbibing the blood of Christ and eating the flesh of Christ, infuses strength into the person so that they can gradually, gradually, gradually live more and more like a Christian. And no one makes it by the end, though, and becomes perfect. And so you can either get uh, an extra merit from the saints who have some extra, or, and or, you can spend time after death in purgatory suffering and paying for what you lack before you make it to heaven. Now, that's one view of justification by faith. Our view, the Protestant view, and we think this is what Scripture teaches, it's not a process. It's an act of God one time in time. Where God is not changing the person, God is justifying the person. God brings the sinner before his bar of justice and says, you are guilty. And the wages of all his sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And death is separation. Soul from body. That's death. Soul from God. And God is a source of all knowledge and light and love. And so you can only dwell then in eternity in darkness and loneliness and ignorance. The word for that is hell. And it creates deep suffering in a human soul. You are guilty, and that is the consequences. But someone has stepped up and willingly taken upon them your sins, all of them. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And you can transfer your sins to him, and his righteousness can be transferred to you. Will you accept this? But it means he then becomes your Lord and master. And many say, no, I don't like that deal. I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. You know that quote. But some say, yes, I'll accept that. And then God says, I now declare you righteous. Well, I didn't, the heavens didn't boo, the building didn't shake. You receive it by faith. That's the instrument that you reach out and grab it. And that is a declaration of righteousness that occurs at a point in time. Then begins a process of what we call sanctification, being made like God. And that's where the process begins. 
but it's not confusing the declaration of righteousness, the justification, with um, the process of sanctification. It's making that distinction. So that we are not always trying to please God in order to win our salvation by the law. We're free from the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. We receive our justification through Jesus Christ at the bar of justice before God. Now, and we say to that, well, that's great. I can go live any way I want to now because all my sins are paid for. That's the accusation, licentiousness. And we say, no, that's a complete misunderstanding. Because a person that accepts that is born again, and they no longer want to sin. They want to live a life that pleasing God. And then through the grace that comes through the church, that inner man is strengthened until he grows and grows and grows. But at no point does he lose it. For example... The scripture is very clear that I am saved by grace through faith. I'm justified by faith, not by keeping the law, because no one can keep the law. But it also says this in John 5, 3, this is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. And it goes on to say this in 1 John 2, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And this is how... Uh, Guy Waters concludes, and if you will, give you another paragraph. The reformers rejected not only the view that authority in matters of faith and practice lies ultimately in the church, but also the view that such authority lies ultimately in the individual. See that? We're not saying the authority is in the church or the government, but we're not saying it's in the individual either. Well, where is it? This authority, rather, is in the Scripture alone. Scripture is the authority. Not even we are the authority. In rejecting the teaching that people are justified, even in part, on the basis of their good works, the Reformers also insisted that people who are justified by faith alone must pursue good works as the fruit and evidence of their justifying faith. That's how the two are connected, and thus we refute the charge that we make individualism the standard. The reformers understood that radical individualism and licentious living were in reality bondage to sin. Oh, this is good stuff. Let me repeat that for you. Radical individualism and licentious living are both, in reality, bondage to sin. It's either bondage to self or bondage to the church. The reformers did not want to see human beings transferred from one form of spiritual bondage to another. 
They long to see men and women freed from sin and freed by and for Jesus Christ through the gospel of grace. If for this reason only we have cause to celebrate the Protestant Reformation. Freed not only from government control or church control, but from our own selves. You see that? That is the antidote for the uh, uh, rampant individualism and licentious living. Freed not only from church and government, but from ourselves. So that the word of God becomes the ultimate authority for our lives, not us. See, And that by being justified by grace through faith, doesn't mean that we never serve God, but it means that all of a sudden we want to serve God. These are the things we affirm. This is the Protestant Reformation. This is what was launched. These are the five solas that we celebrate. What we're celebrating is freedom. Freedom. Freedom from overpowering church, freedom from government, but most of all, freedom from ourselves, being our own individual gods. We can be part of our brethren, part of the church, and God can speak through his word through each other and through the councils and the creeds of the church. That's true freedom. That's what we should be rejoicing in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the true freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. Because how sad it would be to be freed from the shackles of oppressive government and deluded church if we then become prisoner of cells. And we have to follow our own minds and interpretations and become victims of our own licentious lusts. Thank you, Father, that through justification by faith and the the new birth and through the guidance of the Holy Scripture, we can know you, love you, and serve you with freedom and not from prison. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.